You are listening to Untitled Theatre Company number 61's adaptation of Jack London's The Iron Heel, a three-part audio drama recorded remotely. I'm Edward Einhorn, the writer and director. Please continue listening after the episode as I talk with Jack London expert Jay Williams about his biographical trilogy about London. If you enjoy our program, please contribute by texting Iron Heel with no spaces to 44321 and follow the link. Or visit our website, untitledtheater.com. You can also find information there about the script to the stage play version of this drama. This episode is part three, Revolution. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from My dear comrades, welcome again to the Reenactment Archive, an audio archive of historical reenactments of the moments that led to today's Brotherhood of Man. We have reached the final part of our story about the Iron Heel, as told in the diary of Avis Everhart. Once more, I am joined by the author Jack London and the Warblies, a singing group who are adding in some music of the day. I am Antonia Meredith, an historian and propagandist, and I also had a chance to sing along with them one of those songs in part two. I would love to sing along again. Do do you think I might? Of course, we would love to have you sing along. How exciting. You know you sang? Of course, I used to be part of my community choir. Now, you may remember, we are about to go into the most harrowing part of our story. Jack, you were telling me just now that this was the hardest section to write. I've never experienced anything like the battles that they lived through, so it's hard to imagine it. Which is why it's so very valuable to have found Avis's diary. Yes, up till now you have heard the age-old conflict between the socialists and the oligarch play out. Ernest and his new wife Avis fought in their election campaign against Mr. Wixon, the owner of the local mill. But now we arrive at a fateful day. The day of the first public debates of the election. April 20th, 1912. Do you remember hearing that date in school? Maybe so. Now you will learn the true significance of that day to those who were unlucky enough to be part of history. First to speak was my Ernest, and his passion lit the passions of so many in the crowd. For a moment, I dared to hope. Your eyes have been opened. You have witnessed the might of our combined will. Together, We have ended a war before it even began. Who wanted that war? The plutocracy. Who controls the government today? The proletariat with its 20 millions? No! Well, does the middle class with its 8 million? No! No! No more than the proletariat. Who then controls the government? The plutocracy. A mere quarter million, the top nine-tenths of one percent in wealth. There is no Democratic Party. There is no Republican Party. There are only lickspiddlers and panderers, creatures of the top nine-tenths. But we have proven that we can rise up and claim what is rightfully ours. Vote for Wixon and you vote for a continuation of the oligarchy. Vote for Roberts, vote for Roberts and you will get the same. He too is a servant of the machine. Vote for me and you vote for yourselves. I will not be so arrogant as to believe that I am more important than any one of you. Your eyes have been opened at last. Do not let them close. 
Right then, Wixen came rushing onto the stage, waving a signed piece of paper like it was a flag. And behind him was a man with the look of a beaten dog. I come with good news! The general strike is over! Not because of Everhard and his motley crew of revolutionaries, extremists, whose only interest is bringing anarchy to our great land, but because of reasonable men, reasonable men like myself and Mr. Washington here. Mr. Washington is the head of the union that represents the iron and steel workers that I employ. Why is he here? Because together we have forged an agreement, an agreement that brings higher pay and shortened hours. I've been working on similar deals such as this with the railway workers, the machinists, and the engineers. Mr. Washington, would you care to say a few words? Uh, I'm not much for politics, but yes, it's true. We've come to an agreement. After all, we're all Americans. And if it has to be war with Germany, well then, we want to stand with you, not against you. An agreement to join the oligarchy? I have heard these proposals before. They aim only to take a few representatives of the union and make them rich at the cost of every other workman. And... Have we turned away from war to turn back to it again just moments later? This is how the oligarchy destroys us from within. Soon, every fit workman in the United States will be possessed by the ambition to become one of the favored, a privileged leader. Thus will the strong men who might else be revolutionists be won away and their strength used to bolster the oligarchy. Your hour is done, Everhard. There will be no more strikes. No, in place of strikes, there will be slave revolts. And you, Mr. Washington, you will become the chief slave driver. Do you see how he reveals his true aim? Not higher wages for the workers, but anarchy. And one of the unskilled hands that Mr. Washington is supposed to represent, but has sold for his own profit. How much were you offered, Washington? And what is the offer to the workers? One cent or two cents? No more, and no more coming. Isn't that true? So what do you propose instead? Revolution? Violence? If necessary, yes. Whatever means necessary. Yes. You yourself said that power was the arbiter. You, you... You've had your time to speak. Now I think you should leave the speaking to your betters. I will not be forced into silence. Finally, it was time for the Democrat to speak. It seems this debate has been dominated by two extreme views, as if those two views were the only alternative. But the Democratic Party has historically stood in a place of compromise, with one hand out to the worker and the other to those who seek to employ. There is no need to kowtow to the extremists who... Dear comrades, do I need to remind you of the bombings, not only at our gathering that day, but at the political events across the country, 23 of them, all coordinated, of the deaths, mostly among the Democrats, of the arrests, the riots, the repercussions. Anarchist! Anarchist! There's a plot! Do nothing, or you will be destroyed! Then... He slowly sank down and the soldiers grabbed him. The next moment, soldiers were everywhere, clearing the hall I saw no more. I too was put under arrest. I heard of his trial, but did not witness it. Here we must depend on a transcript of the trial. Mr. Everhard, please answer my question. What was the socialist's part in the bombing? I can say flatly, Your Honor, without qualification or doubt of any sort, that the socialists had no hand in the affair. Who threw the bombs? We do not know. But the one thing we are absolutely sure of is that we did not throw them. Then whom do you blame for the crime, young man? 
You were witnessed calling for the violence just moments before the bomb was thrown. Some have theorized that you gave a signal of sorts. I was tricked into it. I believe the Iron Heel is responsible for the attack. Of course, I cannot prove this, but I believe that the Iron Heel planned and perpetrated the outrage for the purpose of foisting the guilt on our shoulders and so bringing about our destruction. That is a very serious accusation to make without evidence. It is what I believe. It's the only explanation I can find. Wixen testified as well. It had been reported to the Speaker of the House by Secret Service agents of the government that they had received rumors that the Socialists were about to resort to terroristic tactics and that the Socialists had decided upon the day when their tactics would go into effect. It was the very day of the debate. I had been warned and that was the reason that so many soldiers were ready at the call. How these terrorists were able to attack and escape, nonetheless, I cannot say. Isn't it obvious? If you were warned and the hall was full of soldiers, whom else but the Iron Heel itself could have arranged this? Silence! I will not allow outbursts like that in my courtroom. Do that one more time, and I will have you removed. Washington also testified. I saw him preparing something in consultation with his socialist brethren. They had approached me in the past about participating in their revolution, and I had avoided them. I am a believer in nonviolence. How much have you been paid? Ernest was removed, as threatened. By the time the conviction came, it was a foregone conclusion. Guilty. Was he? Excuse me? Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I'm just an actor. I'm not a historian or a propagandist. But I was wondering if he was actually guilty. No, of course not. The Black Hundreds must have done the deed in service to the oligarchy. So that was later proved? No, the crime was never solved. But Avis said the same. She loved him, of course. Yes. So she would never believe him capable of such an act. What are you trying to say? I was just wondering whether you thought it possible that the revolutionists were involved. Maybe not Eberhard, but someone else within the party. It was one of the Black Hundreds. I am certain of it. Of myself during this period, there is not much to say. For six months I was kept in prison, though charged with no crime. I was a suspect. A word of fear that all revolutionists were soon to come to know. But... Our own nascent secret service was beginning to work. At the end of my fourth month, I was contacted by Joseph Parkhurst, the prison doctor and a secret revolutionist. He approached me in the prison cafeteria. You will feign illness. Eventually they will send you to the infirmary and I will be your doctor. One of our network has asked to be transferred to the infirmary as well. He will be there to lead you to your escape. What of Ernest? If what I have heard about his trial is true, they will surely put him to death. Your job will be to find a secure hiding place. Ernest will join you when he can. There are over 300 revolutionists currently in prison. To succeed, we must try to release them all at once. Otherwise, it will lead to greater vigilance and suspicion. Remember, the jailers are workers too. Our main job now is to convert them to our cause. They are too entrenched. Some, perhaps. Not all. It happened as he promised. Two nights into my stay at the infirmary in the dead of night, a man whose name I never learned led me through the gates. He had new clothes, a new identity for me. It was decided that I would be disguised as one of the daughters of a lesser oligarch, a man like Wixen, someone who wouldn't be questioned. I was accompanied by a manservant, Dean Bach by name. He was mostly silent, as he was German in origin, and suspicions of the Germans ran high. With the oligarchs firmly in charge, the world stood once more at the brink of war. We traveled by train, that fishing boat. As we drifted, I saw the lights of Alcatraz where Ernest lay, and found comfort in the thought of nearness to him. Then I fuss a young man, I fuss a soldier. It fuss in Germany. There all the young men must be in the army. So I fuss in the army. There was another soldier there, a young man too, 
His father was what you call an agitator, and his father was in jail for this majesty of what you call speaking the truth about the emperor. He was a socialist? Yes. German or American, we are brothers and sisters. This young man, he talked with me much about people and work in the robbery of the people by the capitalists. He made me see things in new ways. When the cooperative Commonwealth comes, I will be glad. Our destination was San Pablo, then on foot to the mountains of Sonoma. We would settle in an abandoned ranch. On the boat, Biedenbach explained what my future must be. You must make yourself over again. You must cease to be. You must become another woman, and not merely in the clothes you wear, but inside your skin under the clothes. You must make yourself over again so that even your husband would not know you. Your voice, your gestures, your mannerisms, your carriage, your walk, everything. But how will I live? I will come every week. More often, if I can. I will bring you everything you need. Food, supplies, news of the outside, for I know it can be hot when you are in hiding. It's too dangerous a journey to try weekly. Remember, we are all brothers and sisters. I had a sister in Germany. I will probably never see her again. But you, I can help. I want to help. I did as he instructed, and Biedenbach visited faithfully. The news Biedenbach brought back was often grim. One day, he told me my father had disappeared. Our comrades sought him everywhere, but... He was lost as completely as if the earth had swallowed him up. I spent months weeping over his fate, even blaming Ernest for it. But I also remembered how Ernest had tried to protect my father for my sake. It was not Ernest who was to blame. Disappearance was one of the horrors of the time. It was an inevitable concomitant of the subterranean warfare that raged through those three centuries. Without warning, without trace... Men and women and even children disappeared and were seen no more, their end shrouded in mystery. The wholesale jail delivery did not occur until well along into 1915. Complicated as it was, it was carried through without a hitch. From Cuba to California, hundreds of our leaders were released. There was not a single instance of miscarriage. Every one of them won to the refuges as planned. Yet, when Ernest was at last led to my refuge, he did not know me. It was dark, and I was lit only by the evening's fire, but I think even in full daylight he might have been fooled. Please, wait here. Where are you going? Where's my wife? You will have to wait for her, I suppose. Do you know my Avis? Quite well. I did not know she had a companion here. I'm grateful that you have kept her company these last two years. Your wife has had no companions, except for occasional visits from the German man who led you here. Where is she then? I was led to believe this is her dwelling. It is. Then who are you? Do you not recognize me at all, Ernest? What do I see? (laughs) Your wife. Avis! It is as if I see two women. You are my Avis, and you are someone else. You're my harem. (laughs) At any rate, we're safe now. And if the United States becomes too hot for us, why, I have qualified for citizenship in Turkey. At the time, polygamy was practiced in Turkey. 18 months we spent together. Together, we built a house, and during that time, artists, scholars, scientists, musicians, and poets came to join us. In our hideout, culture was higher and finer than in the palaces and wonder cities of the oligarchs. For this was part of our fight. As one woman of our company sang, proletariat did not need just bread. She needed roses, too. The song they sang has passed through the centuries, and you may know it. The Warblaze will sing it for us now. Will you join, Antonia? It would be my honor. 
As we come marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill lofts gray, are touched with all the radiance that a Despite these moments of joy, those 18 months were often difficult. Sometimes I would think of all we had lost, think of my father, and I would feel like I could barely breathe for the sadness. Ernest tried to understand, but then became impatient. More losses followed, comrades who died or disappeared. The worst for me was when Biedenbach was shot and killed by one of our own lookouts because he had forgotten the correct password. Please, I'm not a spy. Every day when we were apart, I thought about seeing you. Yet, now you are hardly here. Is it Biedenbach? He was a good man. For two years, he kept me alive. Now they're calling him a traitor. It, it isn't true, Ernest. How do you know? I, maybe no one wanted to tell you that he betrayed us. Maybe they made up the story about the password to comfort you. Because I knew him. I knew him, Ernest. Yes, he was sometimes 
absent-minded, I can believe that lapse, but he was no traitor. Some men are tempted by money. You know nothing about him. You must remember the cause, Avis. Whatever reason he died, it was in service of something bigger than either of us. Sometimes I feel like you forgot that while I was gone. When you're like this, I feel like this is that other woman I saw. What other woman? The one who was here the day I returned. The one I did not recognize as being you until you told me. I am that same woman, but I am human. Allow me to mourn. Search as I might through all the material of those times that has come down to us, I can find no other mention of the fate of Biedenbach. It was not until January 1917 that we left the refuge. All had been arranged with fake identities in place. I was supposed to be Ernest's sister. Together, we took the train to Chicago. The city of Chicago was one of the storm centers of the conflict between labor and capital. A city of street battles and violent death with a class-conscious capitalist organization and a class-conscious workman organization. It is not surprising, therefore, that Chicago also became the storm center of the premature First Revolt. The train has stopped. Perhaps it is a mechanical problem. Hmm, perhaps. But in these times... Listen, was that an explosion? I did not hear it. There, again. It's closer. That I heard. But how? The revolution is months away. Everybody off the train! Everybody off the train! But we have not yet reached the station. Young woman, I would suggest you head for safety. And quickly. The revolutionists are attacking! stepped off into chaos. People were running every which way and plumes of smoke filled the sky. We headed for the great labor ghetto on the south side in the hope of getting in contact with some of the comrades. <sighs> Too late. We knew it. A great screaming roar went up, dim with distance, punctuated with detonation after detonation. Turning the corner, we came upon a man. He was lying in a pool of blood. Shot in the breast. Dead. One of ours? There's no uniform, I cannot say. How did this begin? No order has been given. The oligarchy, it must be. An agent must have infiltrated, given the signal prematurely. Was it the oligarchy, Antonia? It must have been. Who else? Suddenly, the change came over the face of things. A tingle of excitement ran across the air. Automobiles fled past two, three, a dozen. Look out! Take cover! Our brave comrades, they are coming. Look, it's Jackson. Take cover! Jackson! Jackson, don't you recognize us? What has happened to him? He's lost his reason. He's become an anarchist or worse. Why? How? There is no answer but to say that at such times as these men lose their souls. He has entered the abyss and he's glutting on vengeance. Keep hidden. If he sees you, he will kill you. He's only in his death now. The next moment, a mob filled the street. An awful river. The people of the abyss. Jackson was not alone. He was just the forerunner. I thought I had known the face of despair before, but now I found I was looking at it for the first time. It surged past my vision in concrete waves of wrath, snarling and growling, carnivorous, drunk with whiskey from pillaged warehouses, drunk with hatred, drunk with blood. Men, women, and children in rags and tatters, wan faces from which vampire society had sucked the juice of life. Bloated forms swollen with physical corruption, festering youth and festering age, blasted with the ravages of disease and all of the horrors of chronic nutrition, a raging, demoniacal horde. Ah! Ernest, look out! Are you hurt? No. Blood is all his. I stabbed him with his own knife. I think he's dead. Yes. Who is he? 
it's a dead man, that's all I know. Well, I've killed. I'm not sorry for it, it was necessary, even inevitable. Still, it's hard to be caught within the wheels of history. Everhard, come with me. Who are you? How do you know me? I am a comrade, and a friend. On a night like tonight, it is hard to tell friend from foe. But I saw you speak years ago, and yours is a face I will never forget. And who is she? Your wife? My sister. <laughs> Very well. If you prefer, your sister. We have a safe house. Not far. If the revolution has come, I am ready to fight. Now, the revolution has come, but look around you. This battle is already lost. The oligarchy and their agents. We were not ready. We were betrayed. Hmm, perhaps. And perhaps when a spark is lit, no one knows where the fire might spread. The fire has spread too far, too fast. What now? Now we wait. This inferno may burn for hours, it may burn for days, but it will be put out. We will be blamed for the death and the damage. We will wait. We will try again. I didn't imagine it would be like this. Well, did you imagine one battle? Simple and quick, and then victory? Did you hear those screams? Where's that coming from? Ugh, the asylum. The inmates must have escaped. Why not? The city's already gone mad. Bishop Morehouse. What of him? That is where they sent him. Do, do you remember? He's probably been sent on again and again since then. I must find him. There's no way you could reach him, even if he's there. But look out! It's a bomb! As the bomb exploded, Ernest jumped inside the smashed window of a nearby store. I ran, leaving both behind. When I turned and looked behind me, I saw rubble. Somewhere within, I would come to learn, my husband and his comrade were traveling the only way available, down into the basement and from there through a series of catacombs under the city. My path led to the asylum. And now, a strange thing happened. A transformation came over me. The fear of death, for myself and for others, left me. I was strangely exalted. Another being in another life. Nothing mattered. The cause for this one time was lost. But the cause would be here tomorrow. The same cause, ever fresh and ever burning. And thereafter, in the orgy of horror that raged through the succeeding hours, I was able to take a calm interest. Death? meant nothing. Life meant nothing. I was an interested spectator of events, and sometimes swept on by the rush was myself a curious participant. From my mind had leaped to a star-cool altitude, and grasped at a passionless transvaluation of values. Had it not done this? I know that I should have died. I do not know how many hours I stumbled among the dead and injured, through fires and bombs and madness. I finally came across a man, one of a pile of men. A familiar pair of shoulders and a cotton shirt and a familiar fringe of white hair caught my eye. His face had been blasted by a bomb. To this day, I don't know if it was my bishop, but as I held his hand, still warm, the world of my childhood flooded back to me. I waited, silent, unmoving, as the night filled with more cries, more fire, in the dawn, Ernest found me, still sitting. Did you find him? If not him, another like him. Must all peaceful men die in this revolution? I cannot say. 
perhaps. Then I wonder if it is a revolution worth having after all. It is not our choice. The revolution must be fought, and our only choice is which side we will fight for. Or we can choose not to fight. What would we have accomplished then? You hear the train? Fighting has ended. City's returned to its old tricks. People are leaving? Arriving. Slave levies for the rebuilding of Chicago. You see, the Chicago slaves are all killed. They have to import more. The magnitude of what we faced then struck me. The only thing that sustained me was an idea. An idea that perhaps, maybe not in our lifetime, but perhaps there will be a society where... Where what? The manuscript ends there. Jack, what do you think she was envisioning? I don't know. Didn't you add that line, Antonia? <laughs> oh, yes, I did. I, I suppose I imagined she might be envisioning the society we live in today. Are there any clues as to what happened to her after? Nothing but what she wrote at the beginning of her story. That must have been 15 years later? Yes, about that long. And Ernest? We know he died for his part in the Second Revolt. He was executed, I am sure, though we have not yet found a transcript of that trial. Then how do you know? It is the logic of history. He could have died in so many different ways. Maybe through a fellow revolutionary's mistake, like Biedenbach, or by the hand of someone gone mad, like Jackson's victims, or the victim of a stray bomb, like the bishop. How do we know it's by execution? It must have been. They never would have let a threat like him live. <sighs> he was the hero. One of many heroes. Are there no other mentions of him? You must have found something in your work as a historian and propagandist. There is a song. I think you know it. There was an account I read of a great meeting of revolutionaries. Avis and Ernest were both listed as attending. The account states it ended with this song, a sort of anthem. It was written before the real revolution began at the end of the 19th century. It was as if they could see into the future, see the struggles of the revolution, see through the centuries all the way to today. It is called the red flag, for that was the color of the banner that they waved, the same color as the flag in the capital today. Warblies, will you sing it with me? That ends our third and final episode. Thank you for listening. 
I'd like to share with you now an excerpt from my interview with Jay Williams. The full interview will be released separately at a later date. Please remember to leave a review and rating if you enjoyed this series. Hello, I'm Edward Einhorn, the writer and director of this adaptation of The Iron Heel, and I will be talking with Jay Williams, one of the preeminent experts about the life and work of Jack London. He was the senior managing editor of the journal Critical Inquiry until he retired in 2017. He is the author of a three-volume biography of Jack London entitled Author Under Sale, The Imagination of Jack London, and the editor of two volumes, The Oxford Handbook of Jack London and Signature Derrida, and general editor of Oxford's The Complete Works of Jack London. He lives in Petaluma, California, and is currently working on two books, Bohemia America and Dancing Through the Sixties with the Grateful Dead. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me, Edward. So you seem like you're on the verge, or maybe you've already begun writing about the point in his life where he was writing The Iron Heel. So could you tell us a little bit about where he was in his life at that point? Oh, sure. Yeah, this is covered in the second volume and towards the end because he started writing The Iron Heel in August 1906. And he finished, if I remember correctly, in December 1906. It's 90,000 words, so it's a short novel. He thought it would be longer. But as he told his publisher, George Brett at Macmillan and Company, the book had to end with the Chicago Commune and that incredible bloody battle at the end, because anything else would be anticlimactic. So August 1906, I mean, this is an incredibly interesting period in London's life. And it's really important to know what he was writing before, what he was doing before he started writing The Iron Heel, and what he did immediately after, because we understandably think of this book as an exposition of his socialistic point of view, right? Somehow independent from all his work on the Klondike or all his work on Northern California. But in fact, it's part and parcel of the whole thing. So in 1906, he starts taking notes. He's done a lot of reading, of course, in socialism. He started reading he read a, pa- a 10-page pamphlet that was taken from Karl Marx's Capital, and he read that in 1895. So very early on, he was introduced to Marx's actual language, right? And he read Lawrence Groenland's Cooperative Commonwealth. He read uh, Bellamy's Looking Backward. And those three texts for Americans were the central texts for socialism, right? There was a lot of German work coming out. It was slowly being translated, but these works were available, were the principal texts for American socialists and for Jack London. In August, he continued his reading. He kind of stepped it up and drew on uh, works like William Ghent's uh, Mass and Class, Ernest Underman's Science and Evolution, and fictional works by H.G. Wells and by August Donnelly. Those are the usual works that are cited in studies of Iron Heel. And for the most part, it's accurate to say that those works influenced his, his writing, except for Donnelly. Donnelly's work, I'm not sure why people think Caesar's Column was a precursor to the Iron Heel, because it's just so very, very different. Anyway, as he's reading, and we know what he's reading because his wife, Charmian London, his second wife, kept a daily diary the entire length of her time with Jack and before and after. And she would dutifully mark down what they were reading. So we have the documentation, right? And at some point, I think it was in early September, he decided that was enough reading and he embarked on writing this book. One of the works I should mentioned right off the bat, too, that was heavily influential and that people really haven't talked about is George Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman. And it's my contention that he describes Ernest Everhard, the hero of the Iron Heel, or one of the heroes of the Iron Heel, as a Superman because he had just read Man and Superman. Before that, whenever he wanted to talk about Nietzsche's exemplary individuals, he would use the term blonde beast, 
So Blonde Beast does appear in Iron Heel, but it's Iron Heel is the only place that he uses the word Superman. So to some extent, and it's a very complicated sense, Nietzsche was an influence uh, on London in writing the Iron Heel. So he finishes in December, and then the very next day, he begins his semi-autobiographical memoir novel, it's hard to say what it is, entitled The Road. And for that, he took no notes. <laughs> Apparently, there was just no preparation. He just, the very next day, he jumped right into writing that. So that's incredibly interesting when you think about his compositional practice. Before The Iron Heel, he had written two short stories. One was a Klondike story, and he he had to uh, write a Klondike story to finish off a collection of short stories that he was contracted to do. And the other story is this bizarre, bizarre because it's so anomalous, short story, really a sketch of called Just Meat. And it features two robbers in San Francisco who steal a bunch of, I think it's jewelry, if I remember correctly, go back to their apartment, divvy up the goods, and then thinking the other one is going to kill him and take the whole thing, they both poison each other and they both die in front of each other with all the loot on the table in between them. And the moral of the story is that just as capitalists knife each other in the back, so too do these proletariat robbers. And as soon as he finished that story, he started in on the Iron Heel, which is somewhat about the same sort of thing, right? You have bourgeois criminals who are knifing each other in the back, just like their capitalistic overlords. And what is missing from this picture? Enlightened socialists like Ernest Everhard and, and his wife, Avis. So there's that immediate context surrounding the Iron Heel. Then if you step back further and take in even more, in early 1906, remember that the San Francisco earthquake is April 1906. Just before the earthquake, he starts a new novel called Before Adam. Before Adam is about, it's about many things, but it's about the Pleistocene era, uh, what London called the Bone Age. And so what he's doing in that novel is looking back in time and as past time as in an infinite expanse backwards, right? In the Iron Heel, he's looking to the future as an infinite expanse in the other direction. So what we're thinking, what I'm thinking, what I'm claiming is that London, having read thoroughly in the works of Huxley and Darwin and other evolutionists and Herbert Spencer, he had his mind blown by the concept of evolution. And by that, I mean his sense of time was completely blown up by what evolution meant to him. And one of the things that meant to him was that time was expansive and never-ending, infinite in both directions. And so in 1906, he decides to write two novels, one about the past, infinite time, and one about the future, infinite time. Right? So they're kind of, they're very different books, but on that level, you can see London thinking about this grand concept of what time is. So that's incredibly interesting. The other thing, if you look after, we're stepping back, right, and looking at that August 1906 period and contextualizing it even more, after he finishes the Iron Heel and starts and writes The Road, that takes him into February 1907. March 1907, he and Charmian leave on the, the ship that they've built, the Snark, and they sail off out of San Francisco to the Pacific Islands for what he had hoped would be a seven-year around-the-world voyage. Flying from the mast of the snark was the red flag of socialism. So this was his attempt, this voyage of his, the snark voyage, was his attempt to become an international socialist writer and thinker. We, we would call him an influencer now, I guess, content provider. When he lands in Tahiti, he gives his speech revolution. And he gave the speech revolution in Hawaii a couple of times. And then I think once more after Tahiti. And then the trip ended with his illness. And then they came home and 
1909. So, so thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. A really fascinating discussion. Thank I, you I'm for so, the opportunity. So Join us. This episode was produced by Untitled Theatre Company Number 61, A Theatre of Ideas. It's adapted from Jack London's 1908 book, The Iron Heel. It starred Mike Iverson Jr. as Ernest Everhard, Yvonne Rowan as Antonia Meredith, Victoria Rule as Avis Everhard, Travis D. as Mitchell Wixon, Ian W. Hill as Washington and Screaming Man, Jason Harris as Parker's conductor in Garthwaite, Kevin Argus as Roberts in Biedenbach, Yael Haskell as Alana, Joshua Wolf Coleman as Man on the Street, and Craig Anderson as Jackson. The Warblies are Craig Anderson, John Bronson, Yael Haskell, and Jenny Lee Mitchell. Our songs in today's episode were Solidarity Forever, words by Ralph Chaplin to a traditional Protestant camp song of unknown authorship. Red and Roses, words from the poem by James Oppenheim and music by Carolyn Colsot, and The Red Flag, lyrics by Jim Connell to a traditional tune of unknown authorship. Arrangements for the stage version of The Iron Hill were written by Chris Chappelle. Arrangements for this audio play were written by Richard Philbin, who also provided all the instrumentals. Richard also composed and played our background music. The episode was sound designed and edited by Ian W. Hill. Sound effects are courtesy of the BBC through a Creative Commons license or license from Storyblocks. The play was originally presented as a live stage version across various venues in New York, including Judson Church, Freedom Hall, and South Oxford Space in the summer of 2016. The play is published by Theatre 61 Press at theatre61press.com. Funding for this podcast was made possible in part by grant from the Lower Manhattan Community Council, the Puffin Foundation, and the Shapiro Fund. This podcast was recorded under a SAG after a collective bargaining agreement. Please visit our website, untitledtheater.com, to learn more about the show and our theater company. You can also donate by texting Iron Heel with no spaces to 44321 and following the link. If you enjoyed this audio drama, please listen to our other audio drama series, The Resistible Rise of J.R. Brinkley. My name is Edward Einhorn, and I am the writer and director. Thank you again for listening. This has been our final episode of The Iron Heel, but we hope you can join us for our next project wherever it might be.